Hello and welcome to My Boga Conversations. My name is Lee Albert and this is MyBoga.com. I'm here today with Claire Wilkins. Uh, I've known Claire quite a long time and it's really a pleasure and an honour to be able to speak with Claire, who is somebody that I uh, respect greatly in the Ibogaine community. Her work is well known. Um, she uh, aims for excellence and it comes across in everything that she does. And I'll just quickly go through her or her biography. Uh, Claire is a former intravenous drug user and methadone patient who shed her chemical dependencies with the aid of Ibogaine in 2005. Uh, as the founder of Pangea Biomedics, she has facilitated over 800 treatments with a diverse team and has collaborated with MAPS to study the long-term effects of patients undergoing detoxification therapy with Ibogaine for opiates. Since 2010, she has been an active board member of the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance, GITA, is the co-author of the Clinical Guidelines for Ibogaine Assisted Detoxification, a comprehensive risk management resource and minimum standard of care for opioid detoxification. She is also co-author of a noteworthy case study published in the Journal of Psychedelic Studies in 2017. Mentored by Howard Lotsoff, she is committed to advancing scientific research of Iboga, including Ibogaine, its alkaloids and analogues. She is currently collaborating with ICERS in Spain, where a phase two safety and efficacy study using Ibogaine for methadone patients has been approved. Utilizing the cumulative administration method, she developed over 13 years of practice, clinical practice in Mexico. Claire is also part of a cutting-edge cohort of experts who are advancing Parkinson's disease treatment, utilising a successful combination of ibogaine, orthomolecular medicine and nootropics. As these case studies build, data gathered will contribute to new methods that can become open source material for the safest and and best outcomes. As a member of INPUD Input, an international drug user rights organization, Claire is devoted to reducing stigma and harm, promoting the health, dignity and cognitive liberty for people who use drugs and every human's basic right to compassionate medicine. So with all of that, uh, I'm sure you'll agree that this is going to be an interesting conversation and I'm absolutely delighted to be with you here today. Claire, how are you doing? Hi, Lee. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate all your kind words. I'm uh, really honoured to be here as well and uh, never imagined that uh, we would get this far uh, when I look back in the days where I was just desperate for a way out of uh, life on methadone. Yeah. Mm, yes, I, I, I mean, uh, I, I, that's, you, it'd be interesting to just to um, get your reflections on the, the impact that had at the time. I mean, were you completely blown away by, 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 what, you know, by, the, by the treatment itself? Or how did you feel? Um, I actually, um, as soon as I read about Ibogaine, it was in the year 2000, and um, I did not uh, take my Ibogaine treatment for methadone until the year 2005. Um, It took me a few years to switch. I was on long-acting methadone, excuse me, Orlam. It's a long-acting methadone, which no longer exists. And um, I had to switch to regular methadone, which is already long-acting enough. But nevertheless, and then I had to start saving up my money. Um, I was definitely in the lower income bracket. 
and uh, just getting by and working in an office job and uh, very, well, pretty unhappy, you know, really had a a bubble around me. Um, I came from uh, uh, quite a traumatic uh, childhood and upbringing, which I managed to contain and channel into academia until I got into a um, bunch of universities and entered an Ivy League university, which is where I found my true education, which was uh, heroin in the beginning of my uh, my uh, drug use and uh, treatment education. Right. And um, so when I found out about Ibogaine, um, I had always felt like when I looked around at the clinic, when I would go, that... I was never going to be one of those people that was putting 16 sugars in their coffee and hunched over and uh, losing teeth and uh, just on it for life. I I really felt like it was a lily pad for me and it wasn't. But then five years passed and seven years passed. It was, it was just astounding to me yeah. how um, time can just stop, you know, on yeah. something like that. Yeah, I think that the thing that strikes me about methadone is that they're like liquid handcuffs. Um, yeah, that's you know, a it, common it, phrase, yeah. yeah. Especially because you can't move, you can't travel. It's hard to travel without legal approval. And, um, you know, if you leave your clinic for more than a few days, they consider that you've relapsed. And there's there's all sorts of politics and, uh, you know, financial um, issues that are behind, you know, methadone dosing. They're usually private clinics. And um, so uh, you actually, actually have, to have to fight to taper and detox and uh, because they are of the belief that it's a maintenance treatment and that's what it is best, uh, and that it's it's not really a, a, a detoxification treatment. Mm. And if you go to any um, American uh, or North American opioid uh, treatment uh, or op- opioid conference it's usually all maintenance it's 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 very difficult to find forms of detoxification in the grand scale approach to opioid use yes North yeah, yeah, I think the problem, of course, is that uh, there's a there's a large industry behind all of this that makes a lot of money. So, you know, uh, uh, money compromises intentions. And uh, I, what I find particularly disturbing about methadone is that, in fact, it's more insidious and and soul destroying in, in in many ways than, than heroin. And and yet it's supposed to be uh, something that replaces it. So I, I really don't understand. You know, I I I, I, I like Howard Lotzer was of the opinion that uh, it should be available, and I agree. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's he a tough, also, it's a tough to, to call. Interrupt, Sorry? To interrupt, to, to interrupt, yeah. although he was on the board of uh, the National Association of Methadone Advocacy um, and had, you know, was one of the first methadone tapers uh, that came along, uh, he also called it a form of social control. Howard mm. was a very complex and interesting human being who taught me a lot. And um, so for me, uh, yeah, I felt locked in at the same time. It also gave me a period of time where I was not a criminal. Right. It was a short 
was insured my medicine, although yeah. at times when I had financial difficulty, I was threatened with eviction from the program, which is very frightening. And, you know, the use of fear and punishment is um, kind of across the board in, you know, most uh, rehabilitation, which sounds so, you know, um, like, uh, you know, we're going to fix up this house, we're going to fix up this broken human rehabilitation and who gets to decide, you know, what right. uh, nicely rehabbed house or human looks like. And that's what I really love about Ibogaine is you get to decide. It's right. your agenda. It's between you and Iboga. And so when you, to answer your question, um, was it astounding for me? For me, I did a lot of research. I had a lot of years, and this was back when, um, you know, in the in the alts, as they say, that um, um, there were not very many there were not very many providers in, so, in the globe. So you and had your sorry to interrupt. You had your initial uh, treatment with Martin Polanco. Is that yes, right? Yes, I went to the Ibogaine Association, and um, he was not physically there, and I actually don't know if I ever even spoke to him. He had other people working for him. and um, But I spent two years saving up my money and talking to them and researching. And what I came to was that I just, my main goal was that I had a reduced uh, amount of withdrawal symptoms and pause from my Ibogaine experience. That was my gamble. That was my wish. And so my expectations were high and low. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I didn't want to see God. I didn't want to be uh, this this notion of that I was just going to all of a sudden not crave some crave a way out or crave a sense of relief or, uh, you know, I suffer from chronic pain since I was seven years old. So, you know, um, I wasn't sure how I was going to deal with that as well. And that wasn't discussed either. It was just, you're going to get clean. You're not going to want anything. And, uh, and I, I read about different, uh, you know, treatment, uh, testimonials and things like that. I read as everything I could, you know, on Mindvox and thank you, Patrick. Koopa, um, That's right. for, for being there, you know, as as a hub, yeah. uh, and um, and for you, for my iboga, for existing, uh, so that I knew that you know this was something that uh, I wasn't necessarily going to die of, even though my own uh, family and friend circle cautioned me against that. So, my great revelation from having such few expectations, just reduction in withdrawal symptoms, which I did, although I had withdrawal symptoms that continued for over a month after my treatment is this this is not the days of you know sending you home with boosters and ordering online and things like that you had your flood and maybe a booster and i had been on on methadone for nine years so of course i had pause and um you know i weighed almost double what i weigh now and so it was a um uh, it was a lot to even just move my legs. I felt like I was walking around with Brix's legs and that also, you know, kept me awake at night. It was a very difficult experience. And, um, I also couldn't do work. I realized that, um, I couldn't fit back into society the way that I had as a methadone patient. Um, I, I Go ahead. No, sorry. No, I, I was, I was just going to ask you, um, you, you were with, uh, you ended up being a volunteer, is that correct, with Martin? Yes, uh, immediately, immediately when they drove me across the border, the gentleman working with them said, uh, you know, who did the pickups and drop-offs said, uh, if there's any feedback, 
you have. Uh, we'll be glad to take it. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got some feedback, <laughs> you know, and uh, because no one in uh, the house had taken Ibogaine and uh, there's quite a bit of um, misleading um, information I was given and um, I didn't really have anybody to process with. You know, I had a lot of years of pent up uh, pain and uh, unreleased trauma and um, and yet was blissful about that I didn't want to be near an opiate. You know, I didn't want that. Right. And um, but, uh, you know, there were a lot of different things that I felt could have assisted my my process, which I was able to carve out for myself. As soon as I got home, I found uh, the Brain Optimization Institute, which still exists in Los Angeles, California. And um, many of Pangea's uh, clients have gone on to utilize their services. And that's where I was exposed to. Um, more learning about orthomolecular medicine and um, diet, food in relation to addiction, uh, quantum meditation, um, the various uh, modalities that we included along with collaborating with this doctor, uh, Girardi is his name, uh, into Pangea. And I, I, well, I included it into my life. I, I created my own aftercare and um, got better quickly and was able to, you know, feel strong within a month. I remember the exact day when it was like, I wanted to be like everybody else. I would always look at everybody else like, wow, they're not thinking about withdrawals. They're not thinking about when they have to dose snacks. Like I'd, I'd always separate myself from other human beings. And there was the one day I reached where I felt like I was part of all of humanity and I wasn't defined by whether I was in withdrawals or not, or when I needed to dose or not, which I think is a really shaming aspect of uh, dependency where you're defined by the timing of your dose or what would happen if you don't have your medication. And that doesn't exist really for people who have, you know, um, diabetes or high blood pressure and things like that. Right. So actually, from your experience, you um, you you became aware of, of the uh, the bigger picture of, of of if you like what happens after treatment uh, and to support the treatment and, and it's not just a matter of of taking the ibogaine there's a lot of other considerations to consider oh yeah that was when the deep work started mm. you know um, I remember calling up the clinic and saying hey things aren't so shiny anymore and um, my friend who had uh, you know he became my friend uh, Nathan Gabriel is his name. Uh, he's a naturopathic doctor who became part of the Pangea team as well. And um, he said, well, now is when the, the your own deep spiritual work starts. And I was just right. like, uh, okay, <laughs> right. And um, my first meditation actually just clicked right into my Ibogaine experience. It was pretty marvelous. And I was fortunate enough to find a meditation teacher uh, with whom I worked for three years doing intensives. And that... Um, really helped propel me uh, deeper into myself. And um, I think that's what a lot of people, when I speak to them, that's their goal is to be themselves. They've lost themselves. They've they've become uh, something other than who they truly are. And uh, aside from being a quote-unquote user, addict, uh, they also become a scapegoat in their families, and not to mention criminal, 
uh, it's a big part of it, was that I could speak to people who were coming for treatment um, because they came from all over the country um, and um, that I could explain what it would be like because I understood I was told, you know, when I was there, I was the only uh, client there and for a place set up for three to four people at a time or something like that. And um, it was, um, they weren't very successful. You could tell they didn't run a lot of business and um, uh, through there. Um, and this was back in the days when, you know, Ken Alper had just done his paper on the medical subculture. And I just think over barely 3,000 people had taken Ibogaine in the globe. And um, so it just was, there was no, there wasn't a, a Gita yet. Um, there was Howard who was overseeing things and um, in his way, uh, but it was still very small. And so what I decided to do was uh, assist them as a volunteer by speaking to their potential clients, which would help them clients, you know, um, I wanted them to be successful because I wanted Ibogaine to be successful. Um, I, I felt for them. I felt, I saw how much, you know, how little the, even though it is expensive, um, the profit margin is not big with Ibogaine. You know, I could see that immediately. And just as a, a regular human being on what was spent in order to make this all happen, um, from Africa all the way to Mexico and, uh, Etc. Um, so I communicated with uh, clients and explained to them, you know, uh, how, what it would be like and what to expect, you know, from that you put toilet paper in a container rather than down the toilet and that may freak you out. That like the various different aspects from basics like that to um, what it's like in Tijuana. Um, which was, you know, the throat of the drug war for many, many years until recently. And um, uh, many military checkpoints and things like that, you're entering quite a dangerous zone. And not only that, um, you're with people who are not experienced with Ibogaine in terms of having gone through it themselves. So I was that voice for yeah. them. Right. And I was able to continue with people after they had treatment. And so, I mean, people, the first person drove two hours to my house to meet with me and was like, you know, praising God that he had found someone who could understand what he went through, even though we had gone through two different experiences. As you know, I began is unique for each individual. Um, yet we connected and, uh, you know, uh, to this day, uh, still know each other. And I saw myself as useful. I would take the train down and take food. I would um, sit with clients when uh, they were going through treatment. At night, um, you know, it was you arrive on Monday, get your ECG, wait for withdrawal, go into a flood dose, and then the next few days are spent kind of putting yourself back together again, and then you're on your way. And um, so I would go for the flood night sometimes, and sometimes I would go for there was a kind of integration day where they had a body worker who is a psychiatric nurse and acupuncturist, and um, he also eventually ended up quite quickly working with Pangea. He was volunteering, like I was, with 
Martin's Ibogaine Association. And so the two of us really were able to mind meld on, you know, what is needed, you know, what, what, what do people need so that they can feel um, not so distant from everybody when they go home, like they've logged into some kind of new code on operating and they don't have other people who know that code around them including the people who were treating them. <laughs> so it was important for us to keep that web around that human being who had just, like, it's, like, it's like someone had just escaped jail. You want to make sure they don't go back to jail. You know? Right. So you then, uh, how long after was it you set up Pangea yourself and be, you became the director of Pan, uh, founder and director uh, of Pangea? From, from my treatment date until uh, you know the acquisition of Ibogaine Association was a nine month period or ten month period nine month period excuse me. So you uh, you acquired Ibogaine Association is that what you're saying? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And, and yes. where is it located, or where are you located now? We are we are now in in well we're we're we are a global organization. We operate globally and collaborate with. You know, various researchers and uh, treatments in various countries, yet we are based in Nayarit, Mexico, which is on the southern coast of, uh, west coast of Mexico, and it's a much more peaceful place than Tijuana, absolutely, and we've been here for, based here for 10 years. And um, what I just wanted to get clear, though, in terms of acquiring Ibogaine Association, whatever, and with, you know, um, Dr. Martin Polanco and his doctor that he had working with him, et cetera, um, is that in no way did I fancy myself any kind of medic or physician. I just saw myself as, um, and was told and reflected back to me that I was useful. Uh, I felt more useful than ever in my life. Um, and had gone through, you know, quite an education uh, that whereas I, I could have chosen a lot of different careers and um, uh, this was not bringing in any money whatsoever, yet it was um, fueling me in a way like nothing had. And you can probably get that response from anybody you talk to involved with Ibogaine. That right. Something else is fueling them, that the plant is fueling them, that, you know, it's Dimitri, he just, you know, you just went from being a very, very big polysubstance user to how soon can I get this to somebody? If it has to be a hotel room, let's do it, you know? Nice. Um, risking lives to free lives. So um, it's something unique to us, And but I wanted to just make clear that in no way did I think that I could do it better, but I did think that we could create a team you know, and a cohort yes, of people yeah. that, that, could, that could, you know, approach all of the nuances of addiction and Ibogaine treatment, even not for addiction, together. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like you found your calling. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously, you've seen, you've, you've met, you know, you've, you've been involved with 800 treatments. So you've obviously seen a lot of uh, situations occur. I wondered mm -hmm. if you have any thoughts on safety and protocols and uh, you know, adverse events that you'd like to share with us? Uh, well, absolutely, yes. Uh, uh, there was just an Ibogaine safety webinar, a lot of webinars lately with everybody at home um, because of the COVID issue. And uh, 
Um, yeah, so I began safety. I mean, I was uh, a big part of uh, contributing to the guidelines, which have a lot of interventions. Um, I was quite active in that area from watching and being a part of interventions. When we started, um, I mean, when I was treated, there was a uh, a fatality right after me and someone had left early before me and um, let's talk about what an adverse event is first of all there are medical adverse events wherein you know there's the most extreme which is death <clears throat> uh, and then um, there are um, seizures there are people reaching tersodsta points uh, and uh, combined with bradycardia um, and QT prolongation syndrome. Um, there are various adverse events that are medical. Um, those are the most common. And uh, dehydration, um, in inability to stop vomiting. Um, and then there's psychological adverse events where people metabolize really slowly and end up on Ibogaine for up to three to four to five days straight without sleep, continuous visions, or even sometimes 12 hours of continuous exposure to Ibogaine and it's being active can cause someone to be in a manic state. Um, and then there's an adverse event cycle. There are numerous adverse events psychologically that are unique to each individual. Their anxiety is pronounced, their trauma comes to the surface and um, um, they are reliving their trauma and it's projected upon you or someone else on the Absolutely, team. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah, And, 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 and I think that's quite scary for, you know, um, if you like the lay practitioner who's, you know, working on their own and they want to uh, help somebody, you know, uh, and they have this adverse event um, and uh, they're unprepared for it. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's why it, I was so grateful, you know, I don't know why, I don't know where my um, chutzpah came from, uh, well, I guess my mother in a way, um, uh, thank you, mom, uh, it just I called up everybody I could and wrote to everybody I could as soon as I was involved with Ibogaine in a volunteer capacity, and Howard answered the phone, <laughs> you know, and Patrick responded by email and, um, and Ken responded. And so I was fortunate enough to, and Marco to receive support, um, uh, from a group of, of, of elders, which I don't really like that word, wisdom keepers, mentors. uh, mentors that uh, surrounded me and kept me going, you know, when adverse events did occur, even mm. with team of 12 and four MDs. Um, and the attitude that I came into, like, like I said, a death had just occurred right around the time of my treatment. And I assisted Ken with his fatalities paper um, as we had to research, you know, numerous of the fatalities occurred in Tijuana. And, you know, there are various correlations, you know, in the fatalities that have to do with, you know, pre-existing heart conditions and or combinations of other molecules and substances with Ibogaine, which 
you can't necessarily just wait two days and think that cocaine is going to leave someone's body, which you know we did at one point at the beginning. It, it's be, it can stay up to the system in ten days, which we've noticed, and that's where urines come in. And you know the argument um, for urines is always this: like, why not? Why would you not? They're like eight dollars or something right. like that. You can buy them on Amazon, and um, so even for underground providers. And so that argument was, you know, passed on <laughs> to us. And it's just a, even sometimes handing someone the cup, they'll just divulge right away. So um, there, with as far as adverse events, um, there's a lot to be vigilant about. A lot, and of course, looking at the clinics or that have no fatalities, people like Dr. Bruno Rasmussen Chavez and uh, Clear Sky, who've done you know, each. Well, I mean, Clear Sky is I think thousands of treatments now, and I'm, Bruno, his numbers stayed low for lots of years. He was very, very careful and slow and made people uh, come off their substance, their primary substance, before using Ibogaine. And that's something that has been confirmed as uh, suggested as more safely by Roman Pasculin, Dr. Roman Pasculin, and also from what we see in terms of how to reduce the amount of metabolic stress on people when they're going through a detoxification and taking Ibogaine to each are, you know, very powerful on the body and to combine both together can be an extreme amount of stress, which most drug users are used to. So fortunately, their hearts are used to like, you know, having heart attacks or near heart attacks or, um, you know, uh, ODing and things like that. So it's actually quite dangerous for people who have not detoxed. Those are people that, you know, that you've got to really watch out for. But in any way, um, continuance vigilance in regard to ECGs is another thing that I found that people um, have uh, an aversion to or say it's expensive or whatever. It's like, it's not. It's a few hundred bucks on uh, the Internet. And you learn or you get someone else to learn how to do it. You know, it's a few steps. And then um, reading what you're looking for isn't. Uh, I mean, it's, it's available on the internet. If you want to learn it, you don't even have to go to college to learn what you need to learn, just right. like many with Ibogaine. So many of us, including myself, are, are not trained as medics or as um, psychiatrists or, you know, um, have degrees in uh, the work that pertains to this work. It's the, And also there's no oversight. There's no medical, American Medical Association or, you know, global Ibogaine Association that uh, wherein you are beholden to a certain set of you know, code of ethics and conduct. So that is, you know, brings up Gita, which, yes. you know, um, is an important institution, which um, is something to, that we can discuss. Uh, yes. I think, yeah, I think you, you raise an interesting, um, interesting subject in the sense of there is no oversight. Um, you know, there are a lot of people operating in the shadows. And I think, um, at the end of the day, I suppose, you know, the question is, you know, uh, the, the person who needs treatment, um, you know, what is the risk ratio, risk factor uh, of, of not having the treatment as opposed to having the treatment and how to yeah. make that as safe as possible? I mean, my own views on it and, and why I I started my boga was that um, if 
if you know providers or people out there um, had the proper information in terms of how to be as safe as possible, then mm. uh, at the end of the day, that's better than continuing drug use. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, well, but that's I'm, the harm reduction approach. Exactly. And exactly. We are you know, deeply entrenched in that from Howard's teachings, Tatarsky, Andrew Tatarsky's teachings, um, and um, from seeing the results and success that occur when you talk to someone eye to eye and say, well, what is your agenda? This notion of clean and not, you know, not, and or um, uh, addict or non-addict, uh, that's just so uh, simple and mm. basic. And uh, for especially with Ibogaine, it really works on your language centers and people really start to, at least I have noticed uh, for myself and in our clients that, you know, they start to really look at and inquire around language and um, how they word things. For example, I was just speaking with someone who used um, some oxycodone. Uh, recently, after having about a year and a half of uh, without opiates and uh, quite 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 successful, no cravings uh, really, um, and uh, it was around, and someone you know gave it to him, and uh, it eventually called his name, and he used, and then he decided not to use again. Uh, whereas that can be called a relapse, and so you go into this category of relapse. So you're an addict who relapsed, you've lost your time. I'm just using the you know jargon of mm. in 12 step big book jargon and um, what people have internalized and what we see when it comes to shame around that and that they've lost what oh I relapsed and this this word relapse and it just sounds so um, final like like final and ill you sound yes. ill whereas it's more empowered when you say I used and then I chose not to use again mm. and that that's a sign that there's been brain brain repair because you don't go on a bender the normal behavior of a brain that uh, and body and the circumstances of someone who had been using the way that person had would be to go ahead surely and use and yes. go on a run yes. um, and so the anomaly was that he chose not to. Yeah, which 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 brings out the one of the important aspects of ibogaine as a re resetting the brain chemistry. And uh, the question I really that's on my mind is, you know, I, I, I there's a lot of uh, there is a certain element within the community that advocates that treatments should be. Uh, completely within medical context but my own feeling is that um, that would make it unavailable to a great number of people um, and the risk of them Absolutely. you know not getting treated of, of dying because they're not getting treatment um, you know is high and I think that you know, if like if Gita, for example, were able to uh, somehow ensure that standards were being uh, followed, perhaps uh, then the the adverse events and the deaths that are occurring could be greatly minimized. Mini minimized. Yeah, because uh, quite quite a few of the de deaths uh, that you know I've read about, or the adverse events that have been published um, in journals in the last five to eight years, have involved self administration and um, protocols that come from Iboga world. It's pretty obvious um, uh, to do that kind of detective work and, um, or people, that's, so yes, having this, this issue comes up constantly and it's, 
an issue because you, if you're a, a legal clinic, you cannot go, or you can, but um, if you suggest or you give instructions on how to self-administrate in a country where it's scheduled, you're a conspiracy to a federal crime. And um, so uh, at the same time, there can be harm reduction groups that, and you know, ways that you can inform the public how to do this and that you still, that doesn't mean like do it alone, but when you're dealing with, let's say this, this issue came up with Parkinson's, okay? Because um, one of the notions was that there was daily in, daily intake of a small amount of Parkinson of ibogaine for to you know address Parkinson's symptoms, and start reversing them and creating neuro, neuronal growth and GDNF flowing and things like that and um, uh, more dopamine um, and people seeing results and you heard. Um, through the grapevine of people emailing other people, Hamilton Morris was saying he, the chemist who does pharmacopoeia, was saying he was getting emails every week about people taking ibogaine for Parkinson's. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but I'm sure he gets lots of emails. If anyone, he would be the one. When we've done research online for people who are actually doing it and posting their experiences, we haven't found many. But when we started working with Parkinson's, one of the main issues came up with was how are you going to continue to dose yourself? Because we found that certain patients who at first started taking Ibogaine with a provider guiding them were then abandoned. And um, there are lots of issues that come up and recalibration needs to take place. And yes, you do get tolerant to Ibogaine. That is true, as well as other drugs. And Ibogaine can actually reverse tolerance to itself, as strangely as that, that's as strange as that sounds. But um, uh, there's a lot involved with Parkinson's treatment that we've discovered, and we've spent several years with quite a few um, experts alongside us uh, and uh, willing uh, participants who are doing really, really well. and. Just like one has to be vigilant in watching an opioid dependency and getting in there before uh, you know the withdrawals take over, so that you can be accurate with your ibogaine dosing. It's the same thing with Parkinson's when you're working with a progressive disease in making sure that you get enough ibogaine in there. And it's not just about this little daily dosing, but um, people you know, having larger doses sometimes. And so we have always made sure to have a significant other. Who is that significant other and how are they responsible? And then they are trained in the basics of administration and you make sure that there aren't major you know, contraindications um, that are such as cardiac ones, things like that. And, nice. um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a really, um, boy, yeah. it's, it's an, it's an issue. It's an issue yeah. because even with small doses, people can have adverse events that such as, um, you know, just an adverse event is like being unable to sleep and then taking and the inappropriate sleeping medication and then falling, you know, or I mean, there's so many different things when you're not right there that are going on that right. can go on. Right. Well, um, I, yeah, yeah, well, I think that, that you know, with, with the best intention in the world, you know, people who are operating on their own, um, they, you know, normal day-to-day -day pressures of 
uh, money and uh, personal affairs can really impact the quality of the treatment that they are giving and they don't really have the proper support network so i think you know if there were if there was a support network for providers that if you like they they could uh, if you like set a a a, um, a reference point to work against uh, to safeguard against uh, you know um, adverse uh, sort of circumstances and negatively impacting treatments it might bring about greater um, safety in the provision of these services yeah and i think that practically speaking it's about getting several people who are willing to be available you know from you know 8 a.m. to noon and noon to four and whatever and getting people you know globally you can cover the, the time the time zone you can cover 24 hours and um, with enough time that people spend on Facebook or Instagram or whatever um, and actually create something practical where because for us we receive a lot of texts and a lot of calls about well this happened and what do I do and I went to this clinic and this occurred and that um, came out of being a part of Gita um, and having a patient advocacy committee, which is based on Howard Lossoff's patient bill of rights. And you just need to Google Howard Lossoff and patient bill of rights. It's also on the Gita website, which is www.ibogainalliance.org. And that is the foundation of Gita is patient advocacy. And um, it's one of the things that um, really propels me because I receive so many complaints and then I hear people giving presentations about zero incidents and that's that's almost like a that's that's just such a non-statement because zero incidents means nothing happened like of course right. something happens when you're working right. with ibogaine and um you know of course things go left and right and you know <laughs> round the merry-go-round and um what we saw when we were in our first year was that people's attitude we touched on this uh, uh that uh well this is how it is you're dealing with people that you know howard said are four times as likely to die as the average human being and i began as a qt prolonger and then kent came along with it being a, a herg a potassium herg channel blocker and just really uh, you know uh, pro-arrhythmic and it's a a, 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 tr- a tough medicine to swallow you know yes. right and um, and then seeing these adverse events that were occurring and encouraged by Ken and Howard to remain transparent and to learn and to keep going and working with doctors who had to do their um, postmortems and had to and were working with a new brand new molecule that molecule that was a cardio stimulant yet lowered the blood pressure and lowered you know the heart rate like really was a fascinating jigsaw puzzle for, to watch them try and figure it out too, you know? And um, so when these adverse events continued, and for every death, there's probably five to 10, you know, adverse events going on, you know? And um, uh, so that can range from dehydration to a stomach bug to, uh, you know, a seizure. And um, so, I remember asking um, doctors and people, well, if this person had received 300 milligrams rather than a single dose of 1.2 grams or 900 grams or whatever it was, his flood dose, would he have died? 
And they all said no. Right. And um, from that moment, I decided to really listen. And this is what Iboga had taught me, was to really listen to my heart. And I said, it doesn't have to be this way anymore. It really doesn't have to be this way anymore. And that was when we really started working with um, doing cumulative dosing. We were always attracting high-risk patients, people in their 60s plus, people with 20 plus surgeries, uh, people with cardiac issues. Um, And, uh, you know, we were the only clinic at the time in Tijuana, whereas now I think there are at least, I don't know, 50 or so. And, um, and uh, you know, attracting the Northern American, you know, dependencies, which were much more severe than Mexican uh, reasons for taking Ibogaine. You know, there's, there's not an opiate issue here like there is in the United States and Canada. And um, it's more alcohol and crystal meth here. But anyway, nevertheless, uh, the dangers were big. And we uh, didn't want to give up, and we wanted to figure out a way that these people who were willing to die, like you said, I mean, we've had people who were like, well, it's okay, like we'd be looking at their ECG and studying how we could possibly work with someone, um, and they would say, just roll me down the hill, you know, just please, please, I can't live my life like it was before. And it, it is really unreal how willing people are, the risks people are willing to take in order to uh, further themselves and live. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, when you're in that state, um, you know, it's just so unbearable that uh, you're just taking whatever chance you can to get out of it. And uh, I mean, if I just might bring us on to the subject of the Ibogaine movement itself, because I think a lot of the, the topics we're discussing hinges around the fact that there isn't a great cohesion in the community and, and hence there is a, that places um, people at risk because the community is not supporting itself properly. Um, so, you know, what do you, do you feel that that is actually reflective of the fact that the community is made up of people who have perhaps certain behavioral patterns that are re-emerging in the treatment process? Do you oh, think- yes. Oh, yes. I mean, every client that we attract brings something up for me and gives me something chewy to work on for myself. Mm. And I need to make sure to to do that and have the support for that. And that's taken, you know, a while to learn and also to gather the kind of um, experts and uh, psychiatrists and therapists uh, who can handle this kind of heavy workload. You know, um, care providers from nurses to doctors to, you know, Ibogaine clinicians and uh, supporters, uh, uh, I mean, you're, you're dealing with really high rates of addiction right there. Yes. And uh, we've treated quite a few doctors, uh, and um, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's really tough because uh, there's no, aside from the oversight in regard to best practices and things like that for, for treatment, um, there's no private the private organization that um, like the physicians have it where um, if you're a doctor and you have an addiction issue, there are specific rehabilitation centers you can go to that are completely private and that address your exact scenario that you're a physician 
you know, working with medications and that you have an issue in handling medications. And um, we don't have that organization. Right. And it's, it's very loose-knit, and there are people who support each other and have supported each other, yet it's considered a source of shame or something to hide. Uh, yes. And I myself, who, you know, has, when I discovered uh, narcotics, it was like, wow, this is the answer to everything. And to undo all of that and then work with my own trauma that still continues because it's not only the trauma that I grew up with and the lineage that I come from, it's the trauma that's perpetuated with Ibogaine treatment. It, it, I have, have, and I know numerous uh, people who work with Ibogaine who have work-related PTSD. Right. Uh, yes. Um, and I suppose that brings, um, brings out the point that um, you know, if you've if you have been using for many years, there's obviously a reason. Uh, and uh, in order to, I suppose, bring the best of yourself into a clinic, there has to be, if you like, almost a high a sense of a, you know, of a, a self a sort of self, if you like, self reclamation project going on at the same time, so that you're you're not uh, resistant to, uh, you know, to whatever um, comes in the way between you and the treatment of somebody coming in your door, and I just wonder, uh, you know, to, is that the case with all providers that they're actually um, that they're serious about their own. Um, um, their own long-term um, sort of well-being is that is that care is fair to say is that the case? I I I would hope so because they continue to stay around something that you know when you, when you stick around ibogaine it, it 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 and you and you work with people who go through such transcendent states um, and who start to get bathed in serotonin and see the beauty of life and um, uh, believe in themselves uh, and trust again uh, you that it's incredibly inspiring um right so at the same time you also are exposed to uh the opportunity to re-traumatize yourself or feel re-traumatized and you're going through your own personal life as well as being living sort of like a fireman, you know, responding to telephone calls that where people are incredibly desperate or during treatment where people uh, regress to a childlike state and then project that onto you. Um, if you're not doing really great self-care, you can absorb that and take that on. And um, as Gabor Mate says, you live like the hungry ghost. You've absorbed that material and it has nowhere to go if you aren't engaging in really great self-care. And I can speak. Okay. Yes. No, no, sorry. Yes. No, I was going to say that is absolutely right. Where uh, individuals working on their own can get burned out and then lead to uh, being compromised in the way that they offer their treatment. Um, as, and, and so that's where we get back to the community and the lack of, if you like, oversight and community cohesion. So what is the what is the solution to that? Creating an organization for that. But don't we have that already, Gita? Um, yeah, well, Gita is being restructured at the moment, and um, it's incredibly important for it to exist. It, uh, a lot of work went into its creation 
starting with, you know, Howard being alive when at, a, at its inception. And um, for me, it's something that moves me constantly to be a part of something wherein we can share in an open source format, uh, what we've learned. I mean, H Howard said to me, I, w I, I was, I, I never used to speak. I used to wear big clothes and cover my face with my hair and, uh, hide under an opioid bubble. <laughs> so, you know, when I uh, came out of that and hatched, you know, and was talking to Howard one day, you know, he said, well, why wouldn't you share what you've learned. Why would you keep that to yourself? And um, it's true, you know, we really need to share these things and so that other people don't have to go through the trials and errors that, that we did and the people around us have done. There's, there's, there's so much that we've learned in the last few decades and people are insular. And as you said, you know, we're dealing with people who have been substance, you know, users who have been outlaws or into hiding and and so that kind of gets injected into the black market kind of aspect of Ibogaine treatment and the underground aspect of Ibogaine treatment where it doesn't have to be like that. You know, Dimitri has shown us that. Um, and um, there's a, a great deal that we can do for each other. It's we just need to decide to do it. Yeah, you know. I, yeah, I think what strikes me too is that, you know, uh, from my own personal experience, I came to Ibogaine, uh, I was in an awful lot of pain. I really didn't know why I was in that pain. And it took me uh, nearly 20 years to finally, through working with other modalities such as ayahuasca, to finally connect with the abuse of my childhood. And that was really surprising to me because I realized I had compartmentalized uh, what had happened to me as a child. And the, through ayahuasca, I managed to reconnect and get a sense of wholeness. So, uh, you know, I began, if you like, uh, sets you out on the road, but there are many more um, stops along the way to reaching your goal. And I, 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 I think perhaps that, you know, what I've learned from my own experience is that the uh, hidden uh, childhood traumas that I was not fully uh, acknowledging were actually uh, affecting my relationships with other people. And I can see how that would, if you like, could create animosities and so forth and out of projections. And I think there could be a certain element of that that's undermining the community. And maybe the community perhaps needs to make available more modalities for people in the community to continue their own work, such as whatever ayahuasca and so on and so forth. What do you what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I agree with you completely. If you look at, uh, for an example, the conclave and how they are about a group of about a dozen um, people, experts who work with 5-MEO and Bufo Alvarius, and they train and support each other and watch each other and um, are there for each other in a way and have created a code of ethics, uh, a code of uh, um, an integration document that's incredible and uh, best outcomes, best practices uh, uh, um, document and um, are pretty organized. They just don't have the patient advocacy aspect as we had set up. It was Gita and it's same with MAPS. Map is just, MAPS is just now starting to, I think, set that up. And um, uh, in terms of patient advocacy, it's also provider advocacy. And the people who, who do really well are people who form their own network of, you know, 
therapists and uh, people who can be their rearview mirror, so to speak, and show them their blind spots and be there for them. Um, it's, uh, but it, it can be, uh, as Patrick Krupa likes to call us, the dysfunctional family. You know, we are a group of individuals who have somehow lost out or been the black sheep of our blood families and then find each other and find families through three boga, which is so interesting being the medicine of our ancestors, you know, and we, we find this, this, this group together and want to be close to each other. And yet we end up just, you know, like kids fighting in a playground, right, right, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and who's, who's mom and who's dad, where's Howard now? Yeah. <laughs> you no, know? I- yeah, and I think really what, what one of the lessons I've learned, and I don't always practice it, but, uh, you know, uh, love, it's all about love, isn't it, really? Because when we uh, when we replace bitterness with love, it cures a lot of ills. Uh, it really does. And forgiveness. I, yes, I yeah. hear often, um, you know, in, in Spanish, a client said to me um, that uh, that I began, me perdona, y, that, that it, it, it forgives me and allows me to forgive myself. And um, it, he just kept saying that over and over. And, and he was someone who had done quite a few uh, things that would be considered quite hurtful to others and um, and himself and to be carrying that and the the tears of relief of forgiveness that he received were I mean so palpable for me and uh, love and forgiveness that that were all the concept to me you know I really like that uh, we are all actually innocent and doing our best, even the worst offender, as you call it, or uh, as one would call it, or, or perpetrator, has innocence inside of him or herself. They, 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 they carry an innocence that can be found. And for me, that's always been my goal in working with Iboga is to dignify the experience so that the person doesn't feel like they have to go through hell in order to find themselves. Right. So um, I think we're touching on something here, you know, where we're talking about the clients coming in with their traumas, the, the therapists, who, uh, the providers who have their own traumas, they may not even be aware of. So you've got a cauldron of potential, uh, you know, psychic uh, events taking place in, in with this powerful medicine. Uh, and there is no proper support network for for the the participants involved is there no there isn't there are there are many ones uh you know um just as uh, the Ibogaine movement has been a grassroots movement, really, it's the same for the um, the care for the people involved. And uh, it's grassroots. It's who knows who and who you know cares about who and who loves whom unconditionally or who's willing to go on Facebook and slander someone. And, um, you know, it's 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 uh, very labyrinthian, uh, this 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 work. And I do my best to kind of keep away from uh, anything that doesn't teach me something, really. And um, so, uh, and I work, well, we all in our team work so closely with people. We work individually with one person or one family at a time and over time, and they stay in our lives. And so to have my own life and my own personal life and my own personal freedom um, that no one knows about (laughs) and that can just be mine, it's very important, you know, to feel 
safe and away from all of that. And and um, I think that that's really important that we have people to remind us of that. And I I let people know I have certain friends that I can tell everything to and who can be there for me during my hard times where I don't want to talk to anybody and I don't want to talk about anxiety or depression or addiction or, you know, these because uh, once you get involved, it really can take, take, take you over. And it's really important to mm. lead a balanced life and also to engage in self-repair. That's something that um, I wish I had done more of at the beginning instead of having to do so much of now. <laughs> And uh, in terms of the context in which the treatment takes place, uh, you, you, you forwarded on an, uh, an interesting article that MAPS just published regarding the uh, social context of Iboga in, in traditional communities. Mm. However, we don't have the, uh, we don't have, we're a different, it's a different, uh, we're in a different world here. Uh, and I wonder in what way does Iboga translate from the indigenous community into a Western context? Well, it translates into that we take their medicine for ourselves and there are businesses based on that medicine for whom many of uh, those people call family. The trees are their family members. And uh, we in the West use their sacrament for our detoxification to alleviate our overconsumption and don't reciprocate really. There isn't even a, I don't know of, I think any clinic who actively says, you know, for your treatment, we will be planting this many trees or we will arrange that. Uh, we've talked about it in Gita. Um, Jonathan Dickinson is um, a good person to consult on this. Um, Jan Guignon in Gabon and Bendelonen at ICERS and Ricard Farah at ICERS are all people to contact if anybody is interested. And I also know that David Bronner is very interested in um, ethical planting of Tabernathi Boga. Um, people have moved to using Vuakonga sourced Ibogaine as an alternative, which is what we did. Um, yet we also use total alkaloid and we know our source and it comes through Ghana and um, it takes a lot to be conscious of what you're putting in your mouth or what you're, um, but I think once you've taken Ibogaine in the sense of lineage, you don't just look at, you know, who the humans are that are your lineage. It's like, where did this potato come from that's going mm. inside of me? What hands touch this potato? Did pesticides go on this potato? And you, you really go that deep. You can, you know. And a lot of people change not just, you know, what they put in their mouth as far as drugs and pharmaceuticals and things like that, but food and or what comes out of their mouth in terms of language and love as you said you know and um so regarding you know the western context it's many people are downloaded these african experiences and many people take on you know a lot of practitioners have become uh, buiti style practitioners in the west um i myself uh, and our team has discussed it over the years and it's just never gained traction for us because <clears throat> perhaps maybe none of us have gone to Gabon and been initiated in the Buiti or perhaps it just doesn't resonate for us to be because we're working on um, making sure that people have the safest, you know, best outcome 
scenario in terms of detoxification, which is mostly what we work with, is detoxification and chronic pain. And um, so that's not necessarily, there's not really fentanyl happening, I don't think, in Gabon, mm. and I don't know how they're working with that. Um, I know they deal with similar issues of, you know, you can't escape addiction, no matter what society. Um, in simple Buddhist terms, it's habituation, and IBN is fantastic on working with habituation. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I, I, well, I, I just was thinking there that, um, you know, obviously it, it's a great thing to be able to go to Gabon if you if you ever get the chance, I suppose, and, and experience the ritual there, although it's not particularly safe. You have to be very careful. Um, but there's a part of me and, and this was this was my approach from the beginning with the my boga website was that um yes Iboga is as it is in Gabon, but we are in the West and we have to, if you like, honor our own traditions here. And in my own first experience, actually, I felt as though I was in Gabon because um, I was immersed in these uh, dreamlike states where I was in the African uh, savanna and so on and so forth. So I might as well have been there, except I didn't have the the uh, I suppose the what the, t- the tactile experiences of being I- I- there at the time, uh, but I, I think you know I just you know I, I wonder about uh, to what extent we need to um, bring the traditions of Gabon to the West, or can we find a way in the West to um, uh, evolve those traditions to to suit our situation better? Yeah, I'm, I'm of the opinion that we don't need to bring them here. I think there's been enough appropriation already. Um, uh, 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 even, I mean, I've heard even people who've come from Gabon say that Buiti, uh, people say that you should not take the Buiti out of Gabon. I'm not sure how true that is or not because I see it in quite a few locations across the globe and I see a movement of... Um, uh, group uh, treatments, you know, which is a lot, you know, um, you have taken ayahuasca yourself. Um, we haven't, you and I haven't discussed it. I have also, and, you know, being in a group with 25 other people processing that much, uh, material, it was, uh, pretty intense for me. You know, um, I was not a fan of, feeling into all these other people's energy, you know, and from us, you know, having distilled our work down to one person or, you know, a couple or a family member, family at a time. um, And and that organism, uh, it seemed kind of anathema to me to the whole experience of working energetically with someone, yet I'm sure there's wisdom to it for me. from the Western context, it did not make sense uh, to be absorbing and dealing with so much other energetic material. And mm-hmm. same with you know the group. And in Gabon, it's usually one person, and the whole community gathers around that one person. And in the maps article, they mention that 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 is what seems to be missing on the Western side of things is that the individual takes the medicine here, but where is the community? You know. Right. 
And um, that was one of Bruce Alexander's major theories and that, you know, was proven and repeatedly shown to be true in uh, um, various contexts, was that, you know, rats who were in cages, of course, they're going to push the morphine button, but rats who can play and mate and do, you know, do all those sorts of things will actually even forego the morphine and be in withdrawal in order to do all that. And so that's community speaking. You know, and Gabor talks about that as well, that connection and community are the opposite of addiction and isolation. So um, how do we create that? We have to we have to push for it. We, we have to there's this is it's like, you know, there are markets for all sorts of different things. This isn't necessarily a big profit market, you know, uh, but it's there's a huge need for it. So um, it's going to take a, a bunch of, uh, you know, people who are uh, philanthropic or people who are giving with their time, people who understand. Um, this is a very niche market. And what are, what are your thoughts on the commercialization of Ibogaine? I mean, you know, you look at the the, the fact that you can buy uh, a, a gram of Ibogaine for $100 or something. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't take much more than that for a treatment. Um, mm-hmm. And yet you can pay some, you can pay whatever, 15, 20,000, any amount of money mm-hmm. for the treatment. So what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts on that is, well, um, hopefully if you're paying that kind of money, you're paying for things that you get. You're paying for adjunct therapies. You're paying for different therapists. Um, you're paying for a lot of attention and time. Mm. Um, if you're paying that little, um, you're paying just for you and whatever came with that, uh, you know, medicine, whatever nice. that piece of paper is or says, or that human being. Um, I'm not sure that they sit online with you and make sure on Skype that you go through your experience. I, I don't think that, that there's enough manpower behind that particular way of selling medicine. Um, I haven't heard of it anyway. Um, and, um, so I don't know. It's, it, you know, I'm, I remember being really surprised when I first started volunteering with Ibogaine that so many people were against Ibogaine clinics making money. And I, and I, I was, you know, in my low income bracket, no car, taking the bus, uh, barely making rent, um, kind of thing and thought, well, why wouldn't people want to make money? The rehab industry makes tons of money. Do they want people to be paupers and just selfless? Uh, um, cause I saw, you know, what I paid for my four days, it was 3,500 or $4,000 for four Monday through Friday, um, in 2000. 15 years ago and now you can still sort of pay that and you can pay you know quadruple that um hopefully people are getting a lot of you know adjunct therapies for their money if they're paying that kind of money and um yeah it takes a lot to put everything together to make an ibogaine treatment safe Mm -hmm. to, to have the you know from the medications on hand that some like for us we don't use anymore we had to throw out our last few bottles of ampules of uh, atropine because we didn't. We haven't used atropine in over 10 years. That's a medication that raises your heart rate when you get into bradycardia, and um, we would use it often. 
you know, in Tijuana in the first couple of years. And it was like, and once we started changing the protocol to slower over time, we didn't need that anymore. I mean, we still, of course, you know, have brand new atropine, but having the right medication, having an ECG machine, having staff, I mean, these are people who are guarding your life for you. You're right. surrendering. You're going into a state that's beyond liminal. You're going into what some people call the land of the dead. Your heart rate is going low. Your blood pressure is going low. Um, you're in dark tunnels. You're going back in time. I mean, it's different for different people. But um, medically speaking, it's like watching someone go into a very gray area. And for us, that we see it as requiring quite a bit of vigilance. And I think people really take drug use so casually now because people do so many crazy things now in the age of the internet that, um, you know, they get by. And so they don't think of it as a big deal. And they don't think that, you know, you need to put as much into it. But I'm of the opinion that the more that can be put into it, the better, the best that it can be done is what I want to be involved in. Um, I don't want all of the energy of one human being's life all on me. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I agree mean, with you. I agree with you totally. Uh, that, you know, uh, I guess the, the, the people who are working as single provider you know single individual providers are um, taking on a great deal of um, pressure and stress and one can only hope that they are they are well prepared for their whatever they're going to encounter which i suppose talking on that point medical preparation um i mean you mentioned atropine uh, would do are there any other um uh, sort of medical um uh, sort of interventions or drugs that you would uh, use that uh, well that's um all can i just make it easy and refer people to the uh, clinical guidelines okay uh, alliance.org it's a live document that's open to changes there needs to be a 2.0 um, especially for benzodiazepines i feel that there's a lot of misinformation around benzodiazepines i call them the snipers of the fatalities if you look at the fatalities paper and um, you get into talking with people who've had adverse events or fatalities they're usually gabaergic related they're related to someone being suddenly removed from a drug like gabapentin which is very much like a benzodiazepine it's just not officially or suddenly halved their dose of xanax instead of stabilized on a longer acting benzodiazepine which you can be on benzodiazepines and take ibogaine i want to really underscore that um, when i first came along it was a point i had to really get clear with the doctors and the experts and Ken and Howard because I came in hearing very different things from um, Clear Sky, which I think was Healing Visions back then, and um, uh, the, 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 the active clinics and, and, and paraclinicians and um, uh, were all saying different things, you know, and, and, and Dr. Cam, people who were doctors and, 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 and had been working with this medicine for a while, saying different things from other doctors who've been working with same medicine for you know a while and i really wanted to get clear on that and um benzodiazepines are not 
contraindicated with ibogaine. Uh, what is, is suddenly removing them before an ibogaine treatment. That is what prolongs the QT. Uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal as well as alcohol withdrawal prolong the QT interval, and that can lead to torsades and seizures, especially with bradycardia along with it. So um, actually benzodiazepines can be a lifesaver during treatment. If someone is going into a seizure and they haven't told you that they've been taking benzos, you can give them benzodiazepines and and repair the situation quite quickly. Yes, and uh, you, you mentioned to me the uh, Ashton manual. Yes, that's something to uh, have on hand for sure. We have a very thick binder on benzodiazepines and Ashton Manual has all the equivalency ratios and most of the people that I work with in terms of psychiatry and benzodiazepine tapering agree on her equivalency charts. Um, so if you're looking to benzodiazepine tapering, I would recommend after Ibogaine treatment. And usually at any given point, we have four to five people in our radar going through a benzodiazepine taper as it can take up to a year, depending on your your dosage and in order for it to be smooth. So, I mean, it can be short, but that can be very, very uncomfortable. And the Ashton Manual is uh, considered, she's considered the expert. Well, she just recently died, but she's considered the expert uh, in benzodiazepines and it, her manual is online and free. Um, you just have to Google Heather Ashton benzodiazepine manual. And uh, it's, I think, Benzo yeah. Island. Org, yeah, and also actually on YouTube there are um, uh, there are uh, if you like um, videos going through the manual. Um, you you mentioned to me when we were talking before about uh, an ibogaine twelve week webinar. Is this an idea that you had been developing, or is it one that's it's in the works? It's not a webinar. It's an online training course. It's not a webinar. Um, there's been a spate. There have been a spate of webinars ever, almost like several a week, and um, so many to keep up with. Um, it's uh, it's not a bunch of talking heads. Um, uh, with just a little bit of Q&A. It's very interactive. We've been planning it for a while now and we are filling the content. And uh, yes, uh, that's where we feel like the, the need for education, what we're talking about with benzodiazepines. And I just recently listened to an Ibogaine safety um, uh, webinar wherein there was misinformation about something crucial and so I, you know, spoke with the team and we have people who are working on that and experts who are in our board of advisors in the Gita board of advisors who are proponents of us doing this. Um, and it may be a Gita project right now. As of right now, it's a Pangea project because it just wasn't gaining traction with Gita and Gita had other things to work on. And we, during these COVID times, are pausing in treatment. And so we have the perfect time right now to be working on that. And we have the material already. Most of it is just putting it all together and getting people who are experts in their own field um, to contribute. And we are going to be inviting everybody in the, you know, the spirit of radical inclusivity, which is what we fought for with Gita. It was Gita wasn't designed to be the best practitioners. This is the crew of, you know, the cool people or, mm. you know, the smart people. Um, it was to include everybody so we could all be 
um, educated and share because you can learn something from anyone. And um, that's what this is also in the spirit of this uh, educational course is in developing cohorts so that we can actually come up with better ideas, just just like how you and I were talking about coming up with a um, crew uh, or a hotline wherein people can, uh, who are working with Ibogaine can get care or um, uh, some kind of uh, support through their own tough time during a treatment. I have my you know, reach out people that I call when things get really, really tough. And I'm so grateful for that. It would be really nice to have that formalized for people. Um, I just wanted to ask you actually about um, the use of cannabis oil and mushrooms, for example, uh, post-treatment. Uh, what's your, mm-hmm. wh- 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 where do they come in? Uh, well, we've been using cannabis during treatment um, and post-treatment for over 10 years. Um, cannabis oil is incredible. If um, you look at the studies, there are people who, if given the option of having cannabis, reduce their opioid use by 40 to 60 percent. Um, and there are people who detox from opiates uh, with pure cannabis oil. And um, what we found was that it was an incredible pain reliever. It is an incredible pain reliever. And we're talking about full extract cannabis oil. The FICO is also called Phoenix Tears. It's also called Rick Simpson oil. Although he used naphtha, you'd want to use ethanol. Um, Is that sativa or...? It's indica. We all the people indica. we usually get in need to be chilled out, right, <laughs> not indica, amped up. Right. Yeah, That's yeah. and it helps with sleep. And um, using uh, fico instead of benzos is wonderful because you don't, you know, start, you know, flipping that switch unless they're already on benzos, which is fine. But still, at the same time, there are other aspects of it. It synergizes with ibogaine, and um, you can go deeper into the ibogaine experience in a smooth way without having to give more ibogaine so say you have a high-risk patient and you really want to go deeper than just where they are you can use cannabis oil which isn't contraindicated with the heart and with ibogaine and actually smooths and softens out the edges and and gets you in deeper and keeps you down one of the things that we deal with in ibogaine therapy is that the notion of surrender and letting go mm-hmm. and it's incredible you were talking about how many years it took you to get to your trauma until you switched avenues right yeah. and so we see that with ibogaine where people just don't want to lie down they don't want to wear a mask they want to still try and be quote unquote human and um the oil is incredible at just getting people down uh, you know, how much? How much and, uh, do you have? Like uh, protocols or the amounts that you administer? Yeah, we have protocols. Uh, I mean, it's based on the grain of rice. That's the size. The grain of rice. You could get into, you know, uh, micrograms and milligrams, or you know, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. And um, we have that as well in conversions for that. You know, we, we're working on. Um, as I said, this online course. So standardizing as much as possible and making the language as as understandable to others as possible is important because we have our own inner team language that, you know, is just, you know, 
our, our language. Right. So you so. said a grain of, of rice is a your... grain of rice. When you when you do your research, you can you can read about it, and that's like really where you want to start. But there's there's also, you know, uh, doing uh, the blends with coconut oil in enteric capsules, and you do ten to one ratios. There's a lot of uh, different methods of administration from under the tongue straight into your capillaries to using a carrier oil so it hits all more receptors and that's considered the more appropriate way to absorb all especially when you're dealing with people in coming through ibogaine treatment they usually have digestive issues right well i, I recently i heard that uh, uh, mushrooms are being used um post-treatment to help people um, yeah yeah and yeah. Uh, what, what, what do you want to talk about that um yeah i mean i encourage people to find uh whatever is their ally um to keep them going that it won't necessarily and to be checking in with us regularly instead of when calling when it's too late you know and when they're like ah my doctor says to go on an antidepressant whereas they could have just adjusted their protocol with us sooner and you know started taking more um, serotonin precursors and things like that or getting on uh low dose or my, of micro of microdosing of um anything from lsd to mushrooms there are people who use 5-meo as well um and you know with providers for sure that is something you do not want to be doing alone at all um and so it's really we we don't have an agenda for any person we have you know their lives that they continue to live we you know want that and that they uh, let us know how they wish to be treated some of our clients don't even want to come off opioids completely they want to just get off you know, uh, oxys and be maybe on morphine once or twice a day for their chronic pain because they're older and that's how it is. That's 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 what allows them to do their best and be their best. Right. And that being off doesn't make a difference for them. It just makes a difference to some, you know, yes. uh, random invisible authority that exactly. says being off is better. Exactly. So, uh, actually, uh, I, I, I think uh, it'd be uh, remiss of me to let you go without speaking on a subject I know that you're very um, uh, enthusiastic about, and that's orthomolecular uh, medicine. So, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, do you want to just give us a brief um, um, overview of that and how you apply it in your practice? Yeah, well, it's when I spoke to you about, you know, carving out my aftercare, quote unquote, um, and I found a holistic psychologist, uh, Dr. Girardi at the Brain Optimization Institute in Los Angeles, who taught me and I had before uh, I began, you know, always been seeking answers, answers for sleep, answers for anxiety, answers for depression and um, finding quite a bit through uh, nutrition. And that's what orthomolecular medicine is. It's nutritional medicine. It's, it's medicine based on supplements, food, and um, there are certain 
uh, adaptogens that really, really, really assist with your own homeostasis and feeling better. And it's funny because Ibogaine is an adaptogen, and that is that which organizes your cells so it engages in homeostasis. If it's your cell needs more energy, it will give it more energy. If it needs less energy, it will give it less energy. And Ibogaine at certain doses will put some people to sleep and will put some people, make some people more alert. It's really fascinating how it works on each unique uh, whole system. And so that resonated for me and the orthomolecular medicine as the adjunct, it wasn't just putting all the weight on Ibogaine, which does quite a bit on dopamine, on serotonin. Um, there's not a whole lot that it does on acetylcholine nor on the GABA system. So, um, and these were issues that I needed assistance with in terms of memory and anxiety. And um, I found that I was still anxious and dealing with my anxiety and there were other ways to deal with it through supplements mm -hmm. and nootropics. And um, so we, when we started working with Pangea, we started and we worked with a naturopath and we've we developed protocols with naturopaths that treated the main issues coming through, which were uh, the dependencies, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, hepatic issues, liver issues, and anxiety and depression. And so now you'll be reading these days about people who do IVs where they have specific um, they have specific protocols for these conditions, right? Right. And NAD, you'll read about NAD, IVs, and things like that. And so that's what we were doing pretty soon within the second year of working at Pangea. Um, we were incorporating that into our treatments as you know, our, you know, part of our adjunct therapies and just seeing, like, okay, just, just IV vitamin C alone, which I'm sure you've been hearing about yes. from the COVID response, um, is an, it's, it's, uh, clinically proven to reduce opioid withdrawal symptoms. You can find that in journal articles. And so it was just wonderful to watch when, you know, certain people who were high risk, we had to pause for a bit on Ibogaine and we just get them going on, um, bags uh, you know, depending on who they were, that they would get customized uh, protocols for their conditions. And um, watching the um, the liver protocols, many coming in with liver issues, and then the IV vitamin C protocols, where it just was fascinating to see these flowers bloom and you know blood work with liver enzymes going down in a matter of a few days without the ibogaine. I mean, ibogaine is incredible enough already, and the, let's but let's 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 ease up on making it be the the heavyweight, you know, because um, it doesn't want to be. I don't think that. I mean, I don't want to speak for ibogaine. I don't consider that appropriate to speak for a plant, but I just think that the more that we can do for the treatments to be as complete as possible, rather than separating it up into this post-care and where do people go after and what do they do after, like keeping tabs all along from before, during, and after. And for us, that's been the most successful is in like, well, what are you doing? How's your diet? What's going on? And, and with the orthomolecular medicine, it um, that's something that we've been consulted with um, now for with other psychiatrists, physicians, they're jumping on the bandwagon because it works. Great. Yeah, no, I think um, automolecular medicine and nutrition in general is, is 
is something which is undervalued um, as a way, you know, because I mean, so many, basically, it all goes back to the gut. So many people are suffering from gut issues that are the first line of, of absorption of nutrients uh, to supply the body with uh, what it needs to function. And yet we go to, you know, we go to a doctor and we're given the pill and uh, it just baffles me that, that the, the governments don't recognize the need to invest more in, in, in nutrition and less in pharmaceuticals. No, they, they won't. They won't. People, you don't really make money on pennies of vitamin C treatments and... Right. Uh, you know, using herbs uh, such as rhodiola and things that you cannot patent that work incredibly well. Mm. And so, but at the same time, acquiring these different substances and putting the protocols together and developing them individually for each person takes quite a bit of time. And, you know, this is when you're asking about the cost. This is where that comes in. And what we try and do is balance the income we receive from full paying clients with, you know, clients that cannot afford and being able to treat more people like that uh, um, that, that cannot pay full price and yet need that kind of sim- similar kind of care and but yes. that onus is on us and so I've yet to see a non-for-profit Ibogaine clinic and that would be wonderful um, I, I, I would love to see a center that uh, devotes a percentage of their income to Norma who still carries the legacy of Howard and is alive and well and uh, yet um, living in poverty essentially and right. I'm not sure she'd be so uh, thrilled that I would say so. Yet th- this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with our elders, Bob Cisco, uh, Norma Lotsoff, and Dana Beal. The- these people are not well off. Yes. Yet there is a, a new, we were asking about the Western context. The Western context, there there are people profiting and and not reciprocating either to their elders in uh, Ground Zero, Brooklyn, New York, as Ken Alper calls it, or in Africa, um, this notion of sharing and, and, and togetherness. And it's ironic, you know, that Ibogaine really reminds you that we're part of this one mind and this one heart and this beating pulse together. And yet we end up arguing and 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 having fissures and it it saddens me as i i've been a part of that and i want to do my best to repair that i believe in forgiveness i believe that there's a hug at the end um and i don't know it just all i can do is focus on my own wellness at the moment and um being as filled with love as as I can and forgiveness and and things should flow from there. Usually, when you take care of yourself, the rest kind of you know flows along with that. It's, yeah, it sounds like there there needs to be some kind of um, community. What's uh, I don't know. Um, gift giving if you like where every treatment one uh, percent or two percent is put aside for supporting our elders in the community uh, as you described um i think that'd be fantastic because mm. there are private there are, there are one, there are those of us who have done this privately right mm. uh, i think it's time to just get it out in the open that you know there are those of us who work or have worked uh, with this medicine and uh, don't have a financial um you know don't have a savings 
savings account. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Um, uh, and uh, live, uh, you know, on Social Security and uh, get food at the food bank, literally. And um, that there are those of us who suffer with uh, dependency issues and feel very alone and isolated and don't know how to come out with 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 that. And um, so I, I, I yes, I'm, I would like to give voice to that because um, I see and have felt myself um, the crippling nature of, of secrecy and hiding. Yeah, so maybe a fund is something that we should consider uh, going forward. Um, and, I think but it's a great I, idea. Yeah, and, and I was thinking, you know, that, um, well, of course, I, it would, uh, the question is, is to reach out to all the different providers and get them on board. So maybe that's something we can investigate. Um, yeah. Claire, uh, we've covered a lot of material here. I mean, you're a mind of information and um, it's really great to talk to you. And I hope that people listen to this podcast because I think they can learn a lot of wisdom and, and understanding. I just wondered in kind of coming to the end of our conversation, if there's anything else you'd like to discuss here today. Um, God, we really did cover a lot. Mm. We really did cover a lot. I guess um, the since we're discussing, you know, tackling <laughs> hard to solve issues uh, mm. such as the uh, uh, you know caregiver support and um, uh, honoring our elders and uh, reciprocating to the wisdom keepers. Uh, another uh, question that's uh, hard to solve is. Um, why, you know, people talk about, you know, more women, more women. That's what I've been hearing about in the conferences. They always want a woman on, on the panel and, you know, and, uh, and, uh, it's a bit of tokenism in my opinion, you know, it's whomever has the information and is willing to share it and willing to, to go forth and do that is, 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 is great for the job. And, um, uh, I'm more interested in the notion of, you know, black people, indigenous people of color, um, and, and, and why this community is so white. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I'm, I know this question has been asked before. And I'm just amazed, like when, you know, you were talking about what is the Western context of it. It's it's a white context, and Dimitri talks about it, and you know, people go back to Gabon, and that's their way of honoring um, the roots of, of this of of this work. Uh, I I believe that there are a myriad of ways in in order to to do this, but this is just something that's puzzled me because I remember when I walked back into my methadone clinic, like which was predominantly um, African-American clients were there. And um, it was like I was a mirage, you know, like when I told them what I had done, like it, it, it just, it wasn't believable to them. And then how are they going to come up with three, four thousand dollars when they would be hustling to get 20 bucks, you know, like pretending that their car had broken down or whatever, you know. And but we're very, very, very smart people. The drug users can get a hundred dollars in a town where they know nobody at midnight, you know, like we're very, very, very enthusiastic, hardworking people. And um, 
I just am curious as to this. And I know Dimitri has an answer and there are political answers for it. Yet let's talk about just uh, something practical. So I just want to put that out there to whomever listens to this, like, you know, what they can do to um, approach this, you know, without um, that tokenism. Right. Yes, um, that's um, I think there's a there's a, there's quite a lot to be uh, reflected on there. Um, and um, let's wait and see what happens in that space. Um, it is, I think I suppose, uh, you know, part of it has to do with uh, the economic disparity, as you just pointed out, the socioeconomic disparity and the fact that I guess um, uh, white people have more financial resources available to them or you know more whatever networks around them god only knows what it is but um it's it's a sad reflection i suppose of where we are in society at the moment it's not just in the ibogaine community um claire it's been uh wonderful speaking with you and i do hope that gita will uh, you know, re-emerge from the ashes a little bit because it does seem like it's gone a bit asleep at the moment. Is that correct? Yes, it's it's been in the process of being restructured several times over the last couple of years, and uh, but it is not dead. It is an active organization, and anybody who's willing to be a part of it, yet seriously a part of it, and it's volunteer work. It's hard work. Um, it's quite a bit of emotional labor. Um, but it's incredibly worthwhile and, um, I'm not giving up. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, if anybody is interested, they can contact me. Um, you can go to our website, pangeabiomedics.com and, uh, send in a contact application letter, no love letter, whatever you want through there. And, um, we can get going. Uh, on harnessing people we already are it's just taking time like everything right now it's just you know patience um, what kind of um, I suppose what kind of tasks or roles can people take with Gita that would be of help uh, patient advocacy, uh, people who are well versed in uh, nonviolent communication and mediation is a huge priority uh, fundraising Another huge priority. Um, administration, doing simple filing of minutes, uh, taking minutes and filing minutes. Um, and um, community reach out, being able to uh, handle sharp shards of glass perhaps coming at you yeah. uh, in reaching out to people who don't really want to um communicate with anyone but you know potential clients so um uh someone who can who has enough uh, equanimity and sense of self to handle that and um uh you know I, if they're great at fundraising you know perhaps you know a decent pay <laughs> if they're not yeah. the, the the pay isn't great so the perks are are, are more um you know, ethical and um uh, philosophical and psychological than um, financial. 
Yes, I have to say that uh, Jonathan did a great job uh, he, when he organized the uh, conference down in Mexico. That was quite spectacular. Yeah, the Tefo Salon conference was incredible. Mm. Um, yeah, it was incredible. And Jonathan did a wonderful job with Gita uh, over mm. the years, and uh, so much so that uh, you know we haven't been able to find someone who replaces uh, the level of output and um, uh, genius that, that, that he embodies. And so, you know, people who are experienced with executive director positions, uh, we welcome please. And, uh, we know that it's, we're not offering a lot, you know? Um, but like I said, the rewards are really, really soulful to see people connecting or uh, a, a patient being heard after having a negative experience and um, moving through that uh, trauma, traumatic process, um, a provider learning and watching that happen. Um, the conferences where people are come together and share information and the families can come together in celebration rather than in uh, competition. Uh, so, so for me, there, there are a lot of perks. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I'm sure there's there may be somebody listening now who this would would uh, fit perfectly. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Um, yeah, absolutely, fingers and toes. Yeah. So Claire, uh, I think probably at this stage, at this point now, we probably reached a good moment to yeah, end our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you very much, too, for all the work you've done and uh, for taking the time to be on the show. And I look forward to seeing you at the next conference. Yes, absolutely. I really appreciate you uh, bringing us back together and uh, also uh, including the history. I think that a lot of people starting up aren't aware of the beginnings of the movement. And it's uh, really uh, important to me that people stay connected to the beginnings of this work because uh, we have so much to learn instead of uh, relearning ourselves in a haphazardly way. Yes, I think I, I learned from one of the things I learned from Howard was that, um, you know, fulfillment in life comes through service. He believed in that. And yes. uh, so I think we are we are both privileged to be able to offer some service, uh, however great or little it is, in, in an area that is so dire in need. And in that sense, I feel a sense of privilege in doing this work. And uh, it's great to have people like yourself involved as well. So thank you very much, Claire. Uh, I look thank forward you. to speaking to you again. And okay, I wish you the very best. You. So goodbye <laughs> to you. Bye.